be old school. Yeah, old school. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Then we, we are good to go. Good. Cool. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Hit Factory. We're back. You're back. Maybe for the first time this year. It's our first free episode of 2021. And there is already a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's a lot going on, but uh, included in that discussion today is this week's film. It is the 1996 adaptation of the classic Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice musical Evita, directed by Alan Parker and starring Madonna, Antonio Banderas, and Jonathan Price. Uh, joining us today to guide us in our assessment of the film uh, is a very special guest. She is a culture writer and the author of the newsletter Mononym Mythology. It's uh, Sydney Urbanek. Sydney, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this movie. We are excited uh, for you to help us, uh, help guide us through <laughs> the conversation. Um, I, I don't know many other uh, Madonna or, or pop diva scholars that I think are, are as entrenched in well, the mythology, I guess we can call it, as you are. <laughs> Did you want to take a minute to just kind of like plug um, plug the Substack and and talk a little bit about um, what you do and, and some of your research and and all that? Sure. Yeah. So I um, write one in the mythology, as you've said. I have always been a big music video person and a big film person, and I always thought of those two worlds as separate worlds. Um, and then I studied film in my undergrad and. A lot sort of changed when uh, Beyonce's Lemonade came out because my film professor started actually talking about music videos in class. Um, and then there was this very uh, formative class where another one of my professors spent the whole time talking about, you know, like important MTV moments. And I, I didn't really live through the heyday of MTV, obviously, because I just turned 25 as we were chatting about earlier I, I guess I had there were all these moments where a bunch of things clicked into place in my brain where uh, a lot of the things that I'd studied as a film student um, stuff like stardom and you know just the technical aspects of filmmaking they all equally applied to this music video world um, and so I applied to do a master's in cinema studies where I'd be looking at uh, music videos in particular and I came at it initially from the angle of I wanted to write about um, like the advent of the visual album and like the evolution of something from like, you know, A Hard Day's Night from the Beatles to something like Lemonade. I was looking at it from a very like genre-y uh, first perspective and I was always downplaying um, what actually brought me to the music video world in the first place, which was like the stories behind these artists, the sort of extra textual stuff that was happening. Um, I had always been a pretty big fan of Beyonce. So when I was, you know, watching and examining her work, it mattered to me or, you know, it it seemed to really matter what was happening outside of the work itself. Because, you know, you don't, you don't watch Lemonade and think like, who is this about? And there are lots of examples like that. And then the sort of tree of pop stars. I mean, a lot of them are pop divas in particular, but the the tree of pop stars has sort of grown over the last few years as I've gone front to back through all these different artists and like built the tree because I, I kind of think of them as existing on this like sort of genealogy and yeah I'm, I feel like I'm talking in circles but really the the Substack came out of a column that I had been writing um, for a site that has since shuttered which 
was centered around like the the little known stories behind these music videos that you've seen and that you might not know the story behind or a particular music video that was you know it's maybe been talked about a lot but warranted this like additional look because I was going to try and like uncover something new so once the site shuttered it was my opportunity to sort of launch the Substack, and that's kind of what I've been doing since because I think a lot of these videos really pull from an audience's understanding of this the persona or the real life or who they're dating or who they're married to um that kind of thing there's also something interesting um as I've like delved more into your work and thought about um some of the some of the things that I studied in with an art history background um particularly around photography I I'm really drawn to the stuff in your body of work that speaks to this idea of you know the sort of persona that we interact with as an idea as a construction and the ways in which it's related and not related to what's happening in real life or informed by what's happening in real life and I when I pulled that into the watching of Evita specifically I started to see all these things that I had never thought about or noticed before um and it's one of the things I love about your approach to this this body of work is that um, it just sort of unlocked all of these things for me in a movie that I've seen many times in a musical that I've known very, very well since I was a kid. And um, and I just think that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny because that's, um, you know, it's through Madonna and like my my research, quote unquote, of her that brings me to the film in the first place because I didn't grow up watching it. I was sort of moderately familiar with the politics and the, the figures in the story, but um, I didn't see the film for the first time until I guess it would have been last summer at this point. And so, of course, I come to it like with all of that knowledge already in my head, um, and it, it definitely makes for a different kind of watch, I'd say. I think also making for a different kind of watch was uh, when we had first planned for this movie, um, after talking about it with you and then in the, in the madness that ensued last week with the storming of the Capitol, it was interesting to, to then examine as we sort of dove into Evita and the politics around Peronism in the thirties and forties and fifties in Argentina, how highly relevant the conversations around, um, you know, a cult around a pers- political personality and a celebrity and, and coups and the like (laughs) (laughs) yeah because there's this like blurring between um celebrity and politician that happens in this film and that obviously is also happening with you know our celebrities who are political pundits and our political pundits who are also celebrities yeah it's it's uh, been a really interesting couple of weeks to be re-watching and reading things about this film for sure you mentioned a little bit about, you know, the thing drawing you to film and and specifically the visual elements of, of like musicians' careers being the kind of extra textual and 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 uh, the historicization of those things within the sort of like greater pantheon of their work and and their and and their history and and I think that it's it's nice to find a kindred spirit in that regard because we definitely approach things more from kind of like a political perspective a lot here and the reason we focus uh, primarily on the films of the 1990s is because of how they inform our current era. You know, the the, the great sort of uh, 
uh, unwielding of of the neoliberal project under like the the Bill Clinton years and and how the sort of politics of the decade seeped into into the films that were being made um, and also how and why it it feels so um, particularly cogent and, and coherent to what we're what we're seeing with politics today. Um, so uh, you know I know that you are based in Toronto. And I, I was really interested to get a a Canadian perspective on on the events of last week because it's hard to believe that it's only been like seven days as of now since um, a bunch of Trump supporters seven you know, days like to the hour yeah to the basically. hour <laughs> it would have been happening as we were recording this if it was seven days ago um, right but yeah there was you know some some elections and there was a uh, electoral college uh, proceeding to to you know kind of uh, vote in favor of Joe Biden and and a lot of chaos around it. But just, I guess, as someone with a little bit maybe of a, a more objective or outsider perspective, not completely entrenched in American politics all the time, I was very curious to get a little bit of, of your perspective on it. I think after the last five years of being a Canadian engaging with American news, there's a bit of like a numbness. Everyone was tuned into what was happening. But as you've said, there was kind of a distance, um, like a distance that we've been afforded. I'm, you know, I'm one of those people who might be described as very online. So I was sort of watching my American friends react to everything that was happening all day long. And I didn't feel all that removed from it. But I have to remind myself sometimes that I live in like a different country with, you know, like a different, different government, different general fabric in um, more generally. But so it was weird. I I don't know if it's just like pandemic brain or like emotional burnout after the last 10 months or whatever it was, but I didn't feel like it was any more crazy than say like Charlottesville. Although I know that, you know, that's not necessarily true. And I mean, but like watching the news come in right now in the last you know hour that he's just been, Trump has just been impeached for the second time. I like don't know how to feel anymore because it also feels like every time that kind of thing has been celebrated. There was some kind of backlash or reason to not have been, you know, celebratory in the first place. So, yeah, I guess in general, like as a Canadian, like numb mostly to the stories, and also I I try to really avoid the whole like Canadian smugness thing because we have the exact same kind of politics here, even if they're like less pronounced. Even with like pandemic smugness too, like last summer. I'm in Ontario and my province was handling the whole thing decently well, like, you know, relatively speaking, especially because the headlines coming out of the States were so dire and ours were being used as an example of like, oh, here's what the rest of the world is doing. And since then, we've totally backslid. Like it's now we're reaching, you know, critical levels where which showed us all along that there was no point in being smug <laughs> when things were relatively good. So, yeah. The pandemic brain thing, I think, is is real in a, a lot of different ways. I think even in the States, there was a bit of remove for me as well. And I, I think that's less, there's, that's partially, I think, due to the numbness. You know, you sort of have to have a little bit of that to not have a stroke every single day here. But I also think that because uh, a lot of us who have been fortunate enough to actually be able to shelter in place and not have to go out and do our jobs in the outside world, everything sort of feels the same because we're approaching it through a mediated 
uh, environment. So the news that's happening in Canada, in Italy, in the States, like I'm all, I'm consuming all of it the same way. And I'm, I'm experiencing all of it the same way, kind of, because there's no, I don't have those real world touchstones of like walking into the office and saying like, did you see X, Y, and Z? It's just me sitting in a room with Aaron and uh, us like screaming at each other, right? Like that's the extent (laughs) of our, of our sort of uh, uh, engagement beyond the screen um, with, with the conversation. So I also felt that removed, but I think I think mostly just because that's uh, the way that I've been experiencing a lot of the trauma that's been happening the past year. There was a lot of people kind of, you know, I, I think maybe performatively kind of showcasing a level of like shock or or just just completely dumbfounded by it. But but, but part of it is kind of hard to believe <laughs> or, or hard to not believe, I guess. Um, you know, it, it just kind of comes with the territory and is almost expected right now, just kind of with like like you're saying, Carly, like this sort of mediated environment kind of feeding us these sort of like tidbits and, and individual sort of strings of of information uh, and and ideology as well. It's just <laughs> abstracting everything to the point of not actually being able to engage with it on a human level, you know, when yeah. you're just constantly uh, looking at something through a feed or, you know, we've talked about this on our show previously, you know, the propulsion of capitalism, I think, is one that disconnects you from humanity um necessarily so but i think particularly over the last year it's been really um it's been really extreme and really corrosive and so a lot of times you're seeing these like horrifying things um dealing with a lot of grief and processing a lot of really intense traumatic feelings but the remove that we're required to have in order to show up get on a zoom meeting, you know, every single day, or if that's what our job is and, and act like everything's fine, I think makes it harder to more immediately access the kind of emotional core of what's happening at any given moment. I'm speaking for myself only, but that's, that's an experience I've definitely had, particularly in the last year. Yeah. I mean, it'll be strange when we all have to go eventually back to being, you know, in close proximity to everyone and experiencing things that way again because there there will for sure be some sort of emotional recovery period uh, which will probably be pretty long for some people I would imagine um, mm-hmm. it's weird because the whole the whole thing that you were talking about like where it's all mediated for us it, it risks everything feeling like entertainment because it's like everything is coming through your television screen and or your computer or your phone the same way that you're like your Twitter feed or your Zoom or, you know, so everything is the same. It's like all these images <laughs> on the screens and I'm, I'm supposed to like decipher which ones are worth paying attention to in a given moment. And it's very tiring. I mean, I realize that that is the point sometimes, mm-hmm. um, especially like on behalf of the Trump administration. I mean, it's been clear, I think, for like half a decade now that tiring everyone out is part of the strategy, keeping everyone just like fucking exhausted all the time. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I know that yeah. you took because we, you know, initially connected over Twitter. I know you took a break from Twitter for a little bit. Did you come back in like in the midst of like the coup happening? I came back. So that was a Wednesday night. That was like a week ago, right? Yeah. I came back officially officially on the Thursday, but I had been watching Twitter all week. Okay. Um which was nice because it was like no obligation to weigh in. Um, not that I think I should have been weighing in anyway. 
I think that's also another thing that's really frustrated me about, I mean, it frustrates me about social media in general, but in the last year, there's a lot of vying for clout that happens from people who don't really know what they're talking about or so yeah and I it's nice to have been forced to not accidentally in the heat of the moment become one of those people because you know every time I do something like that 72 hours later I'm like "Mm, I didn't need to weigh in at all I could have just pretended not to be online like I was doing last week (laughs) absolutely the the regret after hitting tweet is like very real you know like monitoring it and like if it doesn't get like the immediate gratification that you're looking for it's like oh this was a this was a mistake it's like (laughs) well not even it's that and it's also I'm I'm really glad you brought that up Sydney because that's actually an internal journey I've been going on myself I, I work in the marketing space and um, and so have this interesting relationship with social media where there's, you know, a, a need for me to be online and and being a part of conversations from a professional standpoint and then also, you know, just personally um, interested in things. But I've also been kind of circling around the drain of th- that propensity to say a thing is more for me than it's for anyone else, right? Um, and it took me a long time to figure that out, but I think the, the volatility of the social discourse over the last year has forced me to come to terms with that in ways that I hadn't previously. And I'm glad you mentioned that because it's, it's just affirming something I've been thinking about, uh, myself a lot. And also, um, it's just nice to say out loud, right? It's kind of liberating to just be like, yeah, I, I don't have to weigh in on this thing and it's okay it's a strange thing to give ourselves permission to do because like no one's asking for it in the first place, but, but that's, that's the the impetus of the platforms, right? It makes everyone feel like they're, they're the next like frontline reporter uh, with the hot take. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, and, and this might be a nice segue into the, the film conversation. One of the most interesting uh, phenomena that I saw sort of being adopted by a lot of, of, people in in more kind of like corporate media, whether it's like WAPO or CNN or or any of those kind of entities, was this proclivity uh, towards referring to the the events of the coup and what they were witnessing on TV or or even in person, you know, for some of them who were who were there at the Capitol um, as something that could only happen in in like a banana republic or or in some sort of, you know, a global south country with, you know, with uh, that, that was, uh, you know, mired in in military conflict or or, you know, uproar. And you would know, wouldn't we? we? Right. Well, and that's and that's the thing, you know, is is uh, you know, especially when approaching this film too, and and thinking about its depiction of Peronism. Like, I didn't see anybody explicitly cite Argentina or specifically Peron or or you know the junta regime or or anything like that. Um, but I can't imagine that it was far from people's thoughts thinking about some of these countries and their level of of uh, political catastrophe, I guess is the word. Um, and, and seeing that reflected in people's comments, almost like a co-opting of, of Trump's really famous, like shithole countries rhetoric. And so it was something that I definitely kind of brought into watching Evita and thinking about not just, uh, the film itself and its, its production sort of in, in, in the mid nineties, but also the musical and, and where, we sort of were politically um, in in Europe and, and in North America as it pertained to a lot of these Latin American countries and the legacy of sort of our sort of imperialist involvement in them and, and the way we sort of try to uh, relitigate and, and rehistoricize those things and uh, and also kind of analogize them in specific ways and, and make them seem like they are 
uh, like sort of, you know, one size fits all kind of uh, kind of political ideologies, you know, specifically with Peronism around the idea of, you know, depending on who you talk to, he's either a, a communist or a fascist or, or, you know, right in the middle. And, and it, and it's such, it uh, goes all over the place um, depending on who you're looking at. And so I would be interested in, in getting into a little bit of that in this conversation too. But I think a great place to start is maybe just getting like a, a very brief sort of like back of the box synopsis of Evita. So, you know, generally speaking, Evita tells the story of Eva Perón, who would go on to be the first lady of Argentina. We meet her when she's 15 and she sort of, and the implication is that she kind of sleeps her way from, you know, rural Argentina into Buenos Aires and eventually into like the army where she meets um, Juan Perón, who she then marries. And her life was not all that long. She died when she was 33, I believe. So by the time we're in Buenos Aires and she's met him, she's 24. And then it's sort of about like this there's a link that the film draws or that the musical draws, I should say, between like this coup um, and her kind of coup of the country as like a cultural figure who was a radio star, who was an actress. So who everyone knew about before she actually became the first lady of Argentina. And then just as she's about to make a bid for vice presidency, she's diagnosed with cervical cancer um, and not too long thereafter actually succumbs to it. And I, this is just a side note, I've been reading quite a bit about her as a figure in the last few days. And I gather, if I'm not mistaken, that she wasn't actually told you have cervical cancer. It mm-hmm. was more of a, yeah. you're, you're definitely sick, but let's withhold the details so that you don't know them. And I know that that was not uncommon um, if you were a woman and it was the 50s. So yeah, that part stood out to me because you know, the musical provides kind of like a sanitized version of what it looks like to die from cervical cancer. But, you know, when you read about even just reading her Wikipedia page, like she suffered from severe, constant bleeding and she was, you know, 97 pounds at one point And yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a mess. And what I can talk about later is that that's part of what drew Madonna to the role in the first place was that she had this kind of personal connection to the topic of someone dying in their 30s too young but end of cancer at that and whatnot so hopefully that was a decent synopsis i don't know it was a great synopsis fantastic synopsis yeah um <laughs> and it i mean yeah the, the thing that you're highlighting that the the film kind of leaves out about her her cervical cancer diagnosis and just kind of like the brutality around it you know like there is a lot of speculation that you know um, it, it, it wasn't any sort of malfeasance on behalf of the doctors, but actually like Juan Perón, who um, was very familiar with the signs of this particular disease, given that his first wife died from it very young as well. Um, and he was probably responsible for it. In fact, like probably was a carrier of, of a pretty dangerous strain of like HPV or something. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, ev- even down to like him withholding that just for, you know, like a sense of political expediency potentially and uh, and making it, you know easier to get elected if the if the general public didn't know that uh that their dear evita might might not be alive into that term um, i think at that time she was actually vying for the vice presidency she was yeah i mean the the film kind of sanitizes and the musical as well sort of sanitizes that and and makes her kind of willfully give up the vice presidency because of her failing health but i think uh in fact they were already elected 
and 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 had already won by the time that that uh, her death had occurred, and and that she was finally w- withdrawn from that. But but maybe I'm getting some some history mixed up there. But there's also you know details about her being like lobotomized, um, whether that was because she was getting you know a, a little bit um, telling a little bit too much truth at the end of her life because of of the cancer taking its toll and and her views getting more extreme, or to just like you know negate a lot of the pain. But um, yeah, she certainly suffered a a, a much more sort of uh, kind of brutal ending than than this film certainly affords her and, and the musical does which is which is just really kind of devastating and and you almost find a, even more sympathy than i think i already had for the character um than than what the the film kind of reflects i think that's a a great opportunity to talk a little bit about um what you already alluded to which is sort of madonna's interest in the role because she she is the movie, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, Antonio yeah. Banderas is there. I'm a huge Jonathan Price fan. Like Brazil is one of my favorite films of all time, but, um, but, but she is the film and, you know, a, a big part of this, uh, film's tumultuous history, you know, coming to the, to the silver screen was in fact, because they couldn't ever land on somebody to really play her, um, as I understand it and, and didn't know who it should be. Um, but, but when Alan Parker finally, you know, took the reins, I think back for the second time in the nineties from, from Oliver Stone, she was the one and, and Sydney, maybe you can tell a little bit more about the kind of the history of it and, and Madonna's, uh, frame of mind when she was approaching the role. Sure. Yeah. So, um, Evita is a film that spent almost two decades in, you know, so-called production hell, so many different actresses were at different points, you know, either attached to the project or interested in becoming attached to the project or rumored to be in talks or actually in talks, including Meryl Streep, Michelle Pfeiffer, I believe Glenn Close was also on that list. And then a couple um, Broadway actresses who could sing, you know, that, that kind of singing. But, you know, as early as 1986, Madonna had heard about the project and really wanted to be part of it. And I guess um, that may have been before Oliver Stone was attached to the project. I'm a little wonky on the exact timeline there, but, you know, in in 92 or 93, in the early 90s, let's say, (laughs) um, Oliver Stone is attached and Michelle Pfeiffer is looking like the most viable, likely Evita. And you can actually, if you search on YouTube, Michelle Pfeiffer Evita, you'll hear her doing her like test um, singing. It's interesting to hear like a different a different vocal approach to the same musical. But so wow. Michelle Pfeiffer got pregnant and pulled out of the project. And Oliver Stone, I think, was so fed up with all of the pressure coming from different places that he also left. And then at that point, Alan Parker took the reins, as you've said. And Madonna, there are a few different things that attracted Madonna to the project and what's interesting is that these things became even more true uh, throughout the 90s than they would have been in 1986 when she was first interested in the role. Madonna like Ava lost a parent quite young and grew up without that parent. In her case, in Madonna's case, it was her mother who died of breast cancer when she was 30 and Madonna was five years old. And Madonna is Madonna Jr. because her mother was Madonna Sr. So there was always this kind of interesting, um, she was in a family with multiple kids where she was the only one that was like the namesake that felt this uh, additional pressure to be living out the, the life that her mother had never lived, let's say. And, you know, I actually 
the first big thing I ever wrote about Madonna was about the influence that her mother's death has had on her life and career. So there's that. That's a that's a big thing initially. Another thing is that Madonna, like Ava as well, has has always fielded rumors and criticism and suggestions that she also sort of slept her way through Hollywood, whether it was through like the whole MTV executive team, you know, for airplay. And then um, I think slut shaming has defined a ton of Madonna coverage, you know, in the media from, I want to say that, you know, like until at least the 90s, but it sort of exists (laughs) still. Um, So there was that too. There's some really interesting quotes from her because she kept a diary for Vanity Fair while she was making the movie that Vanity Fair later reprinted in full. Here, I'm going to read a passage if that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And we'll definitely link to the whole the whole diary in in the episode uh, notes as well, because it is, it's an awesome read. I, I, you know, admittedly didn't get through the entire thing before this recording because it it is really lengthy, but, but because of that and just how much detail there is, it's uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So she's talking about shooting um, a certain scene and then she says, um, you know, like the montage where she's sort of moving up in the world, going from the radio to, to acting. And so she says in her journal, is this moving up? I'm not sure. At least I will be clean all the time, which is a reference to the soap company thing. This is the part of the script I find a little dodgy. The implication that Ava slept her way to the top. I guess I am even more offended by it because people always imply that about me. It's a way for envious people to undermine your strength and your accomplishments. Um, so there's that. There's actually a, a lot of, uh, a big through line when you're reading about Evita from the people that were involved, whether it was Madonna or Antonio Banderas or even Alan Parker himself is this uh, suggestion that they were much less concerned with capital P politics and the actual um, political landscape of the time than they were with, I guess, sort of like the myth of of Ava um, and Evita as a figure. So, I, you know, Alan Parker at one point was like, you know, Evita is a story of people whose lives were in politics it's not a political story. It's a Cinderella story about the astonishing life of a girl from the most mundane of backgrounds who became the most powerful woman her country and indeed Latin America had ever seen, a woman never content to be a mere ornament at the side of her husband, the president. So it has a very, there's a big like second wavy theme I, I noticed in a lot of the discussions about the film. I think the comment you made about you know, Parker saying we're not really concerned with the politics, capital P, um, is evident in the musical and definitely in the movie. And there are a lot of aesthetic decisions that Aaron and I were even talking about during the watch and afterward, where you just sort of see like, you know, an errant bomb going off and you're not sure why or where it's coming from and a tank rolling through and people sort of marching with with uh you know vigor and and you don't really understand why and the movie doesn't bother to explain why you know in thinking about it with a bit of remove especially understanding the ways in which an american or more broadly british and like imperialist perspective may have on the happenings uh, in uh, a place like Argentina, there's, you know, an element of those things working to serve as justification um, for 
any villainizing that we may have for any of these characters, particularly Juan and Evita. Um, and I found it really interesting to, to see the movie peppered with these explosions and fires and protests and tanks rolling through and, you know, armies marching through a square and thinking like, if I wasn't sitting here thinking critically about the political goings on, I would buy into that completely. I would, you know, eat up that kind of like red scare uh, propaganda uh, and, and visual cues like very readily. And um, it bothered me on this watch. I just, I found it really at odds with the things that I had also read, um, you know, uh, Weber and Parker sort of refer to the the story as a Cinderella story. And I didn't find any level of even sympathy or empathy in, you know, their casting uh, of Evita um, until sort of the end. Uh, and the markings of political unrest that peppered the movie without attaching any sort of historical accuracy or a placement within the context of what was happening also felt antagonistic to me. And I just felt like didn't really do, do me any favors, but all really added to sort of like the sweeping of emotion and, you know, you're tossed about in, in the, the chaos of it all. But when examining it more critically, I, I was really put off by it and found found it very much to be true that they were not at all concerned with the politics, capital P. And it was kind of like, let's give a sense of the moment uh, with some explosions and a sweeping score. And uh, and then we'll write off. You know, I, I am curious, Sydney, to get uh, your take on this, too, because I I am and, and have been since, you know, I, I have, have listened to, you know, the music of Evita and, and known about this. And actually, this was my very first time watching the film, um, you know, and, and had only ever listened to some of the music out of context and, and had known about it because of Madonna's version of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. He was very shocked to find that that was the, mo the most incredible song of the score. And I was like, where have you been? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's just it's, it's a great it's a catchy little hook. It's catchy that, little uh, hook. It's great. <laughs> but I, you know, one of the things that that I I have always been curious about and and still find a curiosity is specifically Lloyd Webber and, and Rice's portrayal of Evita, and then also Parker, sort of uh, you know lifting a lot of those same kind of I don't want to say judgments, but but a lot of the same assertions about her as a character, and and they kind of bleed into this this film that at once is is kind of we're, we're we're being told is empowering we're being told is is a character with a lot of like nuance and, and a cinderella story of this woman who you know like led a revolution and and became a a sort of political uh figure that's that's you know deified in in uh you know argentine politics mm -hmm. but i couldn't help but feel that like sly undertone of like of, of kind of venom coming from it you know like especially through the narrator che who obviously is is not a reliable narrator you know someone who who has sort of on the ground experience and, and who finds himself sort of overcome by by the charisma of the person despite the politics or or, or despite her inaction or, or inefficacy but um yeah i, I was curious what, what you thought about that because i i, I can't help but feel like it's not the most glamorous depiction of hers there she seems vain she kind of and, and along with Juan almost seems like a charlatan right like someone who 
who pretends to be a member of the working class, who like uh, puts on airs of of being, you know, the sort of like figure that's fighting for the proletariat while dressing themselves in Dior and and going to like kind of garish balls and. And I, I'm curious what your take is on that through maybe the lens of, of some of the same criticism levied at Madonna, but also within the context of the film. From what I understand, the intention all along in creating that musical was to not give the sort of um, glamorized or not not solely glamorized version of Evita, where there was sort of a mix, like to make a story as complicated as the woman herself. And, you know, for that reason, there was some concern in Argentina when this film was being made. I have read that, you know, when they showed up, there was graffiti being like, go home, Madonna, go home, Alan Parker, because mm-hmm. um, they were concerned that it would be, you know, a little too critical or sort of mess with the country's um, idea of Evita as a symbol. And I think it's telling, perhaps, like on the front that you just mentioned, that most people were won over once they saw the film. Um, which I think tells you that it's like not as offensive as it could have been, perhaps. Um, something that's interesting, like to to come at this from like the Madonna angle, just because I've spent so much time like immersed in her life and career and choices and whatever, is that it's this is not the only instance of Madonna um, clinging to a complicated figure, but kind of picking and choosing which things she identifies with. Because I don't know if either of you have seen. W.E., the movie that she made about Wallace Simpson and King Edward, who abdicated and then left Queen Elizabeth II's father in in power or whatever. Um, but so she, Madonna made a film about them as a couple in, I think, 2011 and knew, must have known, because it sort of alluded to in the film that they were both outed as uh, Nazi sympathizers but chose sort of to make the film about like the, you know, like the rest of them, (laughs) the other aspects of their personalities and histories and the love story, which she felt was very compelling. And the fact that she was, you know, an American like her who'd married into this extremely important family. And I don't know how related that project was to the fact that Madonna had been married to Guy Ritchie previously, Mm -hmm. but you, you wonder if that's, you know, part of what informed her coming at that project, like being this sort of very hated American that trespassed on, you know, sacred British soil or whatever. But so <laughs> um, it's, you know, Evita is not the first time that she's done that, where in all of the interviews about the film, she's trying to come at it. I, I guess you have to do this when you're going to play anybody, but trying to come at it where it's not that I I'm playing a character who I despise. It's, you know, how can I see my, how, what can I find in this character that I relate to? And in, and in her case, it was, you know, being kind of demonized in the press and by her peers. It's also really relevant that this film comes in 1996, which is, you know, just a few years after Madonna's erotica era. And Evita was one of the projects that was sort of tasked with cleaning up the brand a little bit um, on on the route to becoming you know a mother by the time of Ray of Light coming out in 97 I want to say because that's the other thing that was also happening while this movie was being made is Madonna found herself pregnant so there's this like perfect storm of I'm pregnant nobody wants me in this movie nobody wants me here in Argentina um, I'm thinking about my mother. I'm thinking about mm. cancer. I'm thinking about 
you know, being a social climber, all these things. In thinking about everything you just noted, you're making me realize that in the film itself, um, particularly because I, I was contrasting it with my my knowledge of the portrayal of Evita by Patti Lapone, which is, of course, very famous. And I think Patti played her so differently and a little bit more ruefully. And what you're describing in terms of Madonna's own kind of emotional milieu bleeding into her performance, I felt that. And and when I was watching this movie again with a more critical eye, I noticed that so much of the like sympathy I had for the character was actually coming from Madonna's performance. Right. Um, you can tell that she, it's very, it's very earnest. Um, and she cares very deeply about the person. Um, and that comes through in nearly every scene, even in these, you know, numbers where she's supposed to be, you know, behaving really underhandedly, or she's proposing a kind of like sexual exchange to Juan in order to gain power. Madonna is singing the words, but she's feeling something and communicating emotions that are different than than what the tone of the the music itself is trying to communicate. And you're making me realize with kind of the backdrop that you just laid out that that's why that's why she feels um, so earnest in her portrayal of Evita. Yeah, the Vanity Fair diaries are uh, especially interesting because she talks about all of the research that she did on the figure and she made sure that she wasn't just talking to people, talking to fans of her, of Evita as a as a symbol, but also the critics, like, you know, staunch anti-peronists. There's also, you know, if we're talking about like Patti Lapone delivering this, you know, superb performance of the character on Broadway, which is this very, you know, strenuous environment when it comes to rehearsals but you know at the end of the day Patty Lapone just has to get on stage and and perform that not to make that sound like it's not like a huge endeavor but so when you're reading the diaries and you know you wonder how much of this is like a pregnancy that Madonna hasn't realized that she's experiencing yet but <laughs> she's not sleeping she's having nightmares and some of the nightmares are like she's imagining herself as Evita mm-hmm. they had her wearing like a, a toothpiece like fake teeth and contacts because Madonna has like crazy blue eyes and um, Evita did not and waking up having slept you know an hour there were fans outside the hotel all the time who would sing and she wouldn't get any sleep so when she's standing there looking kind of like frail supposedly that's all real it's not like Madonna you know performing frailness or performing sleep deprivation, she was like really struggling physically as well as emotionally throughout that whole thing. And I think, you know, as you've said, it really lends an air of empathy on our part like to Madonna playing Ava Perone as opposed to just to Ava Perone. There's nothing ever on screen from her, you know, that that's less than just like completely sympathetic and, and urgent and, and sort of impassioned. Um, and this definitely was like one of the better parts of, of that diary is just kind of seeing her really get into the role um, one of my other favorite sort of like anecdotes from it is sort of the 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 legacy of of her interactions with with President uh, Menem at the time mm-hmm. to convince him to let them uh, do the scenes from the balcony of the Casa Rosado and uh, how he was very apprehensive for a long time. And they were like kind of simultaneously building 
uh, a soundstage in London to shoot on after they left Buenos Aires just in case and and sort of like at the 11th hour they actually got an opportunity to do it and 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 shoot up there and um yeah it's it's <laughs> her her interactions with him specifically are really uh funny you know she she sees him as like a very charming figure and it's almost sort of this like battle of wills where she kind of calls out and notices every time that he admires her or like notices her bra strap which is like sticking out of her dress and mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know um also kind of mentions like I think she says one of the lines that she uses is like uh, Latin men are are here to are here to to flatter women but also to torture them or something like that <laughs> and uh she's and, remembering her Antonio Banderas days that's when what I was, she when yeah. she recounts yeah. that that's what I was gonna say next is is going into uh because Sydney you shared with us a, a really fun clip from from a tour documentary um about mm-hmm. uh Madonna meeting Antonio Banderas for the first time. Was this, was this 92, 91? 91. So here I am. I'm, I spend the whole week psyching myself up for this party that I'm going to go to. And then I've, I've got it all worked out in my head. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Antonio fall madly in love with me. Only there was this one rather major obstacle that I'd never really counted on. His wife. It, so the film came out in 91. It would have been like 1990 at some point when she was on her Blonde Ambition tour. So it's Truth or Dare is the film. Um, yeah, so that's her meeting Antonio Banderas for the first time. And of course, like we don't know how much of that is her sitting in the editing room after the fact and voicing it over. But um, it's very funny watching that, knowing that she didn't know she was going to end up in Evita with him five mm-hmm. years later. What's also interesting, you know, about the anecdote where she's she's with the real president um trying to charm him into letting them use the real the real balcony is that she's sort of in that moment being a like sort of like a diplomatic figure like she's she's having to balance you know her own charm there's a bit of like political maneuvering happening on her part in that moment which is also interesting because she talks a lot about feeling like she was being haunted Mm. (laughs) by Ava Prone's ghost just because the two like there was such an entanglement that had happened between like her real self and the role that she was supposed to play and I mean I'm I'm sure that happens all the time with with actors I I gather though it's the only thing that was really getting her through that that film just because it was pretty strenuous was this commitment that she felt she had to telling the story I love what you said too about um you know the parallels between criticisms of Madonna's, you know, career trajectory and claims that she had, uh, you know, used her sexuality to get ahead and and the parallels with Evita. I was also thinking about, you know, the way that kind of plays out in uh, her taking on the role, just sort of technically speaking, as a singer. I remember, because I was old enough at the time, and uh, grew up in a house listening to musicals, and so was familiar with Evita before it became a movie, you know, that a lot of the conversation was like, Madonna really is going to do this like really intense uh, Broadway performance that takes a lot of technical agility from a vocal perspective, um, and that there was a conversation around like, mm, like, she's not, that's not really her, and and it was interesting revisiting the film and thinking about some of the things that you had had mentioned when we first connected with you about the parallels. And so I was approaching it through that lens and thinking, um, you know, there are a lot of 
there are definitely a lot of changes that they made to the music and sort of what what keys they're in and how high you know they go um, in in octaves so that she can actually perform the music. And there are certain times when, especially because I'm so familiar with the Patti Lapone uh, performance, when you hear her straining, and it made me sort of think about uh, just coming back to this idea that you posit about the parallels between her life and her career and that of Ava Perone's that that even in taking on the role as Evita in the movie, um, as a singer, a person who can definitely sing and perform, there was still this like, she's not welcome here, she can't do the part, this is, we need like a Broadway caliber actress. And then hearing her in some cases actually strain and kind of feel a little, hear that she's a little bit out of place, but that she's so committed to it, right? It gave the the background texture that you're talking about um, even more meaning for me, just kind of thinking about the fact that even in a space where she has was an established uh, celebrity and performer, singing, dancing, all the things, she's she is extremely talented, as we know, there was still her having to prove herself to a certain extent, still her saying, I, you know, I deserve to be here. I can sing this role but that that was even a challenge. And again, I think just added to, to more of the, the earnestness that she approaches the role with. I honestly think that like it, it lends, her way of singing those songs lends the film something that would have been lost if there had been a professional Broadway actress playing it. Because if she's singing alongside Jonathan Price, singing alongside Antonio Bandera, they all kind of are on the same like wavelength in terms of not, not talk singing, but sort of a conversational way of singing those songs. I mean, even Patti LuPone has said that those, you know, those songs were some of the hardest that she's ever had to sing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was said in jest, because um, I don't know the context, but she apparently said something along the lines of, you know, I was like screaming my way through those songs every night. They were obviously written by someone who definitely like hates women, something, something <laughs> along those lines. <laughs> But the, you know, the studio sessions for Evita sound like they were pretty uh, grueling on Madonna's part. She has said as recently as, you know, 2019, that Andrew Lloyd Webber is not like the nicest person to work with as is. And like, this is not the only story of that nature in existence. But he was especially, you know, difficult for Madonna to work with because he really was looking for a different kind of voice they had to make all these last minute changes um, to the way that they were recording the song. So as you said, lots of changes to the music itself. She was used to, you know, having massive amounts of creative control over everything she'd do in the studio. Um, But she had to at first record with this like live orchestra and that wasn't working because it was stressing her out. And it meant that she was sort of, they were matching her speed when she was, she was used to singing along to like a pre-recorded musical track so in the end, they had to do this workaround where they recorded the orchestra like separately from her doing her vocals. So it's it's funny to imagine her kind of being thrust into this studio makeup that she doesn't really like, but kind of getting her way in the end to an extent, like to make it work for Madonna. Yeah, it was. Um, I'm glad glad you brought up sort of the the, the chaos around the studio sessions with Andrew Lloyd Webber because yeah, he certainly has you know is on record as not being the nicest person to work with. Um, 
And it just made me recall too that you know I guess Alan Parker also um, had had some very like sincere and and serious conversations up front with Madonna that uh, that this wasn't you know him directing a Madonna music video this was him directing Evita and she was the actress and he was the director and, and you know kind of having to mm-hmm. like to secure that that place and sort of like the hierarchy. Um, yeah, I, I think we brought it up earlier, but you know, in talking about when. Um, when Oliver Stone was attached to to the script for a little while in in the 80s and, and maybe even the early 90s at that point, there was a confluence of things I think that were going on, if I remember correctly. Um, one of them being, of course, that that Jeffrey Katzenberg then at Disney, who is uh, just a heinous moron and makes all the worst business decisions, um, kind of balked at, at like a $30 million budget for it and, and eventually got cold feet, which is why it, it ultimately fell apart. But I think that uh, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, uh, some some report that I read that that discussed that Madonna was insistent upon like final rights for the script that Oliver Stone was writing, at which point he basically told her to fuck off and was like, this is not going to work um, because I, you know, I'm, I'm a creative and and I, I want to be the person who has final say on this. So there was always that kind of like clash of wills on, on the film, it seems like, but. Uh, if I remember correctly, she also told Andrew Lloyd Webber outright in the eighties, I want to change some of the lyrics to your musical. Yeah. Which doesn't really surprise me as an anecdote. I I'm glad, I guess that that didn't happen in the end, just because I think like, I'm glad it worked out the way that it worked out. But yeah, it's a very like Madonna's eighties kind of story. <laughs> also interesting too, that I, I guess this is the first time that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice collaborated on, on new music since Evita initially that that they had had kind of been working independently for for a, a considerable amount of time pretty much the entire gestation period of of the film um, so that was certainly something that came together too and they did write original music for this one there's a couple of of new tracks in there and and obviously the the script was uh, a major alteration on on some of the music one of the ones I guess that that's consistent with this idea that we were talking about uh, you know in in regards to sympathizing the character more so in the film um, through the performance and, and and through some of the directorial decisions as opposed to in the musical is uh, the recurrence of the song, um, what's it called? Another, another suitcase, suitcase. In, a, in another hall. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which is in, in the original musical, uh, one that's uh, sort of a solo for uh, Perone's mistress, who's ousted by Evita after they meet um, doing sort of like the relief uh, concert and and galas and what have you and and she comes to live with him, um, but they they use it to sort of bookend that relationship where she is growing weary of of her trysts and and her constant sleeping around and and feeling empty because of uh, you know sort of these uh, meaningless. Uh, sexual encounters and relationships as a means of advancing and then leaving her feeling kind of broken and undone by them. Um, and then it's reflected back at us again through through the mistress, but, but you know, a, a part of it that also um, gives sort of a sense of, of unity to those two characters and, and, a, and a familiarity of that sort of emotion and, and the evocation of it, which I found interesting. And, and one of the, the directorial decisions that I, I really like I thought that was a beautiful inversion of that of that particular piece and your your bookending point about it coming back at the end of the movie when when Evita is dying and in in the film she sings a refrain and asks you know where am I going to um which is a refrain from this another suitcase song and I just I loved that sort of like 
triptych of those those three pieces of that song bringing that refrain through and I I agree with you that it it did add more sort of emotional heft to her journey and that she wasn't just this kind of like bloodless ruthless political climber and that was something that the film I think did well I also can't picture this musical without you must love me because I really like that song and I I know that you know there's obviously a version of the musical that exists without it but um she apparently sort of bristled at the lyrics to that song at first because she thought that 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 fell into that category of like the social climb like the blatant social climbing figure but I really love the way that it kind of repeats too it's the second I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not making anything up when I say this, but I'm going to have to like furiously Google this after to make we sure. We make up things all the time. So. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> it was, I think it won like the Oscar for best original song that year, which would make it the second win for a song that Madonna like performed, but because she wasn't one of the co-writers didn't like, wasn't eligible for the actual award. Cause mm-hmm. that was also true of um, sooner or later from Dick, oh, Tracy? From Dick Tracy yeah, yeah that's I right. sooner or later won but it was definitely nominated because she performed the song at the Oscars that year um but there's this interesting like thing happening where Madonna keeps being you know nominated for Oscars but technically not nominated for Oscars <laughs> that she would otherwise have and that was only in the, in the case of Evita because she didn't get to make any changes to you must love me which would have given her a songwriting credit yeah there's I I'm just so glad for the lens with which you approached and first pitched us this movie because it's, as I said, it's a movie and a a property that I've been familiar with for a long time. And I had never thought about it um, through this kind of parallel arcs of Madonna and Evita. And even um, in watching the, uh, the dressing up montage when she's, you know, she sings the piece of like, uh, they must adore me. So Christian Dior me. I like immediately thought of Material Girl, which then made me think of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And and that was a thing that I had never thought about in seeing the movie before. But because because we were approaching it through this lens of finding parallels, there were even a couple of sort of like shots that mirrored the music video in the film um, in that particular montage. And I just, whether that's, you know, happenstance or not, it's it adds to to the the rights that I think Madonna had to really play this role. Yeah, she's really good, um, I think, at building her own myth using other people's existing ones. So, I mean, Marilyn Monroe was an early example of that, that she would continue to come back to. And then, you know, Ava Perone also falls into that category where, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but 96 and you know like the mid 90s for Madonna were a critical moment where she was sort of salvaging what was left of public sympathy for her and one way to do that was to play this you know dying woman that had all these similarities to her in real life because she it was I think the third thing to come in the like bouncing back tour that she was on what's the term I'm looking for it'll come to me later but, you know, the first one was uh, her the album that had come out in 1994, which was Bedtime Stories. And then she released right. an album of like a compilation of ballads the next year and then immediately went into Evita. So it was like these all these things to kind of recover from erotica and the sex book, which she, you know, has said that she doesn't regret at all, but nevertheless had done some damage to like the public 
imagination of her, which I think played a role in why people were so, people in Argentina were a bit wary of having her play this like much beloved figure. Yeah. And they all kind of fit into that same aesthetic. Like I remember very, um, very distinctly when bedtime stories came out and watching one of the music videos and I got the cassette tape and it has that sort of Jean Harlow, like 40s starlet aesthetic to, you know, not just the the kind of press shoots that she was doing at the time, but also the music videos. And it's interesting thinking about those works as being a part of a rehabilitative project that were, you know, sort of directly scrubbing the erotica image. And I don't think I ever thought about Evita as a part of that, but it definitely was. Like I remember watching the movie and thinking, yeah, this this feels like the Madonna I know now. This this feels right. It uh it fell in line with the the rest of the work that those um, artistic endeavors were doing. Yeah, I mean, like old Hollywood is a really big through line for her as an artist. Um, there's a really I just have to say this because I didn't realize it till today when I was reading back the Vanity Fair diaries. But I'm quite interested in the relationship that Madonna had with David Fincher, mm-hmm. whom she worked with several times. It's obviously one of my big like obsessions. Um, and there's a an entry in this from you know Thursday, February 22nd, 1996, where she says, last night I dreamed that I was pursuing a director I was once in love with. And he invited me into his home to tell me that he couldn't be with me. And she goes on about the dream, but I was trying to like do the math. And there's probably no one else that she'd be talking about there that isn't David Fincher so it was Mm. really fun for me to realize that like going back through this diary so she's you know this is 96 and she's thinking about David Fincher when she's in (laughs) Argentina filming Vida (laughs) but it's it it comes back though to that like old Hollywood thing because they were always positioning themselves or she was always positioning themselves herself in those collabs with him as like the Marlena Dietrich figure to his Joseph von Sternberg. So mm-hmm. can you, as our resident Madonna scholar and historian, um, maybe give us a little bit of detail on like, you know, this, this sort of, as you said, um, kind of like comeback and, and uh, rebranding effort on, on Madonna's part after erotica and in, in the mid nineties here, would you categorize it as successful? Like what I, I, I'm, I have to admit that I'm not particularly familiar with where Madonna's career was maybe in like the later nineties and then early aughts, you know, I, I kind of fall off after, after this era here and um, curious to know what, what you think of it and, and, and maybe what she uh, feels in, in reflecting upon it as, as whether or not it was a worthwhile endeavor and a success. She has said that she doesn't regret that chapter, the erotica chapter, but she has also said that she wouldn't have done it again, which I think is sort of like the definition of a regret Um, But I think she came to realize that she'd revealed too much of herself at a time where people weren't ready for that. So I think in her case, there's like a two things true at once thing where she that project and her you know behavior, let's say, in the 90s paved away for a lot of her successors. But she also suffered from it in a way that I don't think she ever really, you know, for some people fully recovered from by ray of light there had been like the sort of the full circle of recovery because she also had this baby and she was a mom and there was that you know Evita was like the third and those that that slew of projects that helped come back from the the big scandal of the sex book and of um of erotica I think of 
you know, the, the chapter that she needed to recover from as ending with like their famous uh, Letterman interview in 1994, where she, she like dropped some record number of F-bombs on, on, on the air live. And there was some guests waiting backstage that she was being very like arrogant and wouldn't let them on. And it's a really interesting interview to watch back because you can kind of like feel for both of them where he's just desperately trying to do his job, but he's also making fun of her in a way that I think she was very sick of two and a half years into defending the project um, and the whole era. So I think, I think the rebrand with um, you know bedtime stories and something to remember, which was the ballads album and the, the film and then Ray of Light, it was successful. I think her commercial peak had passed by this point. I, I know Ray of, Ray of Light was like a much, much loved album. And then it kind of like slowly starts to drop off in terms of commercial sales. But I, I think Madonna was doing pretty well for herself commercially until American Life in 2003, because that was the one where she pissed off a lot of, you know, quote unquote, patriots. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think of it as being successful, but I also wasn't like super tuned into it as it was happening. So I, I do have this kind of bias of like the researcher bias for like, I know how the story ends and that she sort of survived it and what she's done since, but it's hard to say whether if I'd been like a huge Madonna fan at the time, cause I wasn't alive when erotica came out, if I would feel like the rebrand had been successful. There are some people though, you know, like my dad thinks Madonna, you know, like her career lived and died with like a virgin. So it sort of depends on who you ask. Yeah. That's a good answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. uh, no, good to good to acknowledge for sure that, you know, we we still see uh, Madonna is still, you know, a powerhouse, you know, regardless of of, you know, maybe, you know, what uh, uh, Billboard Charter or a record sale might say, you know, like she is still such like a, a prominent figure in in our culture and, and in pop music that it's it's hard to like understate. Yeah, just how like how powerful she still is, right? <laughs> um, and you just have to respect her too. I think I think about this a lot when I um, another songstress who was highly sexualized constantly, who I just also think um, is truly powerful is is Dolly Parton. And and when I think of Madonna, it's not that I necessarily think of Madonna and Dolly Parton as the same, but both able to really wield their sexuality in a way that gave them agency when it would have been very easy to sort of be the, you know, the person on display um, who who wasn't owning the image and, um, you know, being uh, a point of observation rather than the person really owning the image and owning the, um, owning the story. And you know, regardless of her commercial sales, I think the thing that I've always felt about her, even in later and more recent years when she's sort of sounding more erratic and 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 kind of like having her like Liza Minnelli phase, shall we, shall we say, um, I, <laughs> I, I still think of her as this like really powerful, aggressive um, female force. And I think a lot of that has to do with being a young girl in the early 90s and seeing her utilize her sexuality in a way that I had not ever seen before, you know, growing up watching like Beauty and the Beast, right? Like just a very, very different 
uh, a very different expression of of um, what it means to be female. And so that for me is like what's carved into my brain about her, that she has this incredible power that regardless of what is happening in her career, that that is something core to her and core to um, the persona that she's crafted and evolved, you know, very successfully over many decades in, in the vein of other great pop stars like like a Michael Jackson, um, just seeing her move in and out of personas and do a lot of the work of, uh, of constructing an image, but it's still always feeling very much like it's someone I know. There are a few people that I think can do that as deftly and uh, creatively as she can. And so, you know, regardless of what the billboard sales say, that's that's kind of what I feel about her, particularly as it relates to her sexuality. And Evita, I think, is very much a part of that. And the more I've learned about Ava Perone, the more I've thought that that view of Madonna has become more entrenched for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think I have anything to add to that because I agree with everything <laughs> that you yeah. said. I think Evita will go on, like it will be remembered as one of her sort of triumph moments, especially when it did hit in her career trajectory. It was also like the first film she'd made in many, many films that wasn't panned by critics. Um, and, you know, I think she's actually a good actress who's found herself in bad movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important, you know, a lot of critics at the time couldn't necessarily, uh, maybe not even couldn't tell the difference, but like didn't really care to. But yeah, I think it's 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 a highlight on like in her story because it also, I mean, there are these little the Golden Globe was a big triumph, her even having a baby, which is sort of inextricably linked to that same moment. Mm. Um, that was, she considered that to be a triumph because of the fact that she'd always wanted to be a mother because, you know, motherhood had always been like a, sort of like a, at once a sore spot and a goal. Um, and she now has six kids, which is the same as her mother before she died. So there's this really mm. interesting, like Madonna Jr. living out Madonna senior's life but living it mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah. and she's I guess in the last couple of years been having trouble physically with trying to um it's unclear what's causing whatever like physical ailments she has it might be age it's more likely just like really hardcore dancing for <laughs> decades and trying to do that yeah. when you're uh, in your early 60s but she's at another kind of standstill moment where I think she needs to figure out what's going to happen next because you know like the erratic tweeting and the you know, <laughs> bathtub milk bath with florals <laughs> videos like that's not gonna do much for her long term so I think we'll see her like probably go back to the drawing board and try and decide what she's going to do next she's done it before so it's like there's no reason why she wouldn't be able to do it again it's just mm-hmm. you know the, the landscape is so much different now than the one where she was putting out like her commercial peak let's say so mm-hmm. um i know we've already gone pretty long but i, I did want to just touch on one more thing because um carly your your kind of mention of tandem legacies of both a figure like madonna and someone like like ava perone like abita i i find really fascinating if you get into the political contextualization you know the thing that this movie seems to be a little bit devoid of but um specifically you know everything that happened after ava's death and, and in the latter 
part of Juan Perón's uh, legacy. And, you know, he, following her death, there was uh, an exile, you know, a couple of years later as as a, a military regime uh, forced a coup. And he took refuge in, in Madrid for a little while because uh, he and Francisco Franco were, were big pals. Just hanging out. Uh, yeah, just General Franco, you know. <laughs> um, and then eventually came back, you know, uh, married to now Isabel Perón and uh, and and took power again and and then she assumed power after his death in 1974 the interesting thing about you know kind of the development of of the musical is that it happened to start to sort of take place and and see its its uh, premiere in london in the same early years of the like really right-wing junta regime coming to power uh in argentina taking over ousting Isabel Perón and really starting to to attack and kill a lot of like Peronist sympathizers, a lot of political dissidents and journalists. Like this is this is the Dirty Wars era, right? This is Operation Condor right. that uh, that the CIA kind of backed and, you know, I'm not going to put on a tinfoil hat, I promise, that it's like, you know, uh, this <laughs> this this uh uh musical that is that is, you know, a little bit uh objective and a little bit critical of of the Peron regime coming out at the same time that that uh, you know, western authorities and, and national security agencies are, are backing coups and and disappearing people i promise i won't i'm not putting two and two together there i give you <laughs> i give you permission to don that tinfoil hat <laughs> uh you know but i i think one of the, the big things is you know like in that 76 coup the person who was second to power whose name escapes me now but obviously a military general um actually uh legislated a ban on even mentioning the name of of Evita or Juan Perón uh, in in the country for a, a long period of time, um, yeah. And then and then sort of you know as as democracy is sort of restored, you know, at the end of the 80s and the early 90s, you know, you've you've got Alphonsine coming in, and then you have Menem who took power and and was the president, you know, in I believe his second term when this film was shooting. Um, you think about sort of the political context of the popularity of a figure like Evita in Argentine culture and thinking about um, the way that this film saw so many hurdles and and finally came to fruition in the 90s. Um, and, and I have to just draw the parallel, you know, that Menem initially refused them access to Buenos Aires because he was in the midst of a re-election campaign and, uh, and didn't want to uh, trouble that at all by allowing Hollywood influence. And at the same time, you know, this is a part of sort of this this great like Chicago boys, like shock doctrine project that, that uh, Naomi Klein writes about a lot, you know, um, with, with the, the junta and then subsequently Alphonsine and, and Menem, uh, keeping the same economists in their cabinet who were telling them to uh, undercut all of these sort of like social welfare programs that, that Perón made popular, you know, uh, take away the power of, of unionists and, and labor um, advocates and specifically start privatizing a lot of industries, you know, and, and, and letting in this sort of American influence. And it's just interesting to see the connection between uh, that sort of, of economic policy and ideology of, you know, what, what we would maybe classify as like the, the glasnost, right, in the Soviet Union, like this like opening up and, and privatization and, and um, sort of getting cozy with like multinational corporations and the the permission of, of Hollywood representatives to come in and finally make this film. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything there, but it, but I, I just did find it as interesting that, you know, uh, because we talk about the, the historical elements of the 90s that, you know, at this point where sort of this these ideas of like neoliberal policy, these ideas of like globalization and, and this this 
loosening of of these imagined borders, <laughs> you know, and this sort of like global community that was being built in the Clinton era um, seems to come to full fruition. The, the film comes to full fruition at the same time um, and, and one that was so troubled beforehand. So I, I, I can't help but see those two things as as inextricably linked. It absolutely behooves an American uh, or, you know, Western European capitalist government to completely dismiss or erase any sort of social uh, welfare, um, substantive material gains that happened under Peronism. Right. Uh, and they and they do manage to conflate a lot of the issues with like the national debt that was taken on from the 70s onward by um, a lot of loans from the IMF, who were a, a big part of pushing all of these like, you know, like trade uh, sort of policies. They, they sort of conflate all of that debt that they incurred and, and the rising sort of level of poverty in the country after the Perón regime with the things that were implemented by Perón and and also um, made popular by Evita. <laughs> yeah, there's never a mention in the musical or the movie of, you know, nationalized healthcare or daycare or women's suffrage or, um, you know, a lot of the the power that was given to unions. And it wasn't all unicorns and daisies, there were certainly a lot of authoritarian imp impulses that were driving a lot of that change. Mm -hmm. But I do think your point is an interesting one in this or a, a relevant one in that both in the 70s and in the 90s, it certainly behooves uh, a Western imperialist government uh, to underscore the material gains of a socialist effort or a communist effort right. on the part of uh, a, a Juan Perón or Ava Perón and over rotate on the destruction and the the sort of their fixation on wealth and uh, that they're charlatans. <laughs> and especially during Clinton era politics, when, you know, we were sort of all at the dawning age of what we now know um, really lovingly as austerity politics. Like uh, it, it, it certainly makes sense that you would, um, that this, the story of this public figure who was so loved that she became a saint and did so much for her community, that there would have to be some tinge to to make that palatable for an American audience and not give us any socialist ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's my take on that. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that makes this story so fascinating is that it's like, it's a sliver of a story that's itself just a sliver in like a greater story because I mean she wasn't like wife number one and she wasn't wife she wasn't his last wife either and it's really it's interesting to see like what if you're thinking about like selecting different bits of the story and narrativizing them what got left out is as interesting as what's included I, I guess it's true of pretty much everything but in this you know like there's there's wild aspects of her life even like after she died, like with the embalming and yeah. her body being like transported for internationally like, forever. Yeah, yeah. For like exactly. So uncovered um, in Italy somewhere. Yeah, it almost. I mean, it's it's a very like Hollywood movie, Hollywood musical epic in the sense that it almost makes more sense just to like not know anything else about <laughs> the story than like what's yeah. what's happening in the frame. You know, in spite of those things, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm being critical of the musical because I actually I, I adore it and I, I really enjoyed the film itself. And um, yeah, the legacy behind it, like we said, just just colors in, you know, a lot of those lines and, and makes the whole thing 
uh, really sparkle. <laughs> I mean, I was bawling at the end of this watch. And I don't think, you know, when I watched it when I was younger, I was certainly moved by uh, the performance. But I was, I just like all of the things converging together really made it feel so much more tragic. And this this recent watch, I think also just hap- watching it right now with everything that's happening, um, I had a, a very emotional response to it. <laughs> yeah, I think we actually ended up watching it like on on the evening after after the events of of last Wednesday. And uh... oh yes, that'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. Well, we were just kind of you know like awestruck and mouth agape. It's like man, I did not. Did not think that this movie was going to be, uh, you know, this relevant to, to today and nope. and also have that emotional core to it as well, um, you know, propagated by by some really great actors um, among them and, and at the very top of the list, Madonna, you know, who um, I will defend to the death in uh, A League of Their Own. I, I will have <laughs> nobody besmirching uh, her performance. Oh, she's, fantastic I think that she's fantastic in that movie. In that one. It's great, yeah. And that's sort of like the one between Desperately Seeking Susan and mm. and Evita that people people really love. Others are sometimes, you know, Dick Tracy and mm-hmm. um, other one-offs, but people tend to like criticize the performances in those. But yeah, I love a of their own. Maybe that's a a later episode. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> totally. We will absolutely do that. Um, I think that's a good place to wrap up with everything here. This is going to be a nice long one. Juicy. Yeah, absolutely. The film is, uh, as we said, Evita. It's a lot of fun. Um, Sydney Urbanek, thank you uh, for for being here to offer your insight and uh, and your knowledge to us. Oh, thank you. This is absolutely my pleasure. It's nice to be able to actually speak out loud about this stuff from time to time. It's <laughs> always just like, you know, hold up reading and writing and yeah it's a nice change of pace awesome well, we're nice happy to have to... a reason to rewatch this one too yeah mm-hmm. we're happy to host you and we will absolutely do it again at some point um we will again make sure to link to mononym mythology uh, in the show notes here and uh, a- another quick plug for our our january uh organization that we're donating our, our Patreon proceeds to. Uh, it is called Hotels Not Hospitals. It's an organization um, of, of activists working to, uh, to help our unhoused community here in San Francisco, uh, partnered with, uh, with the San Francisco DSA chapter. Uh, we, earlier this week, released a, a small intro with one of the organizers uh, of Hotels Not Hospitals uh, named Edna Kozakaro. And if you haven't listened to it yet, please do. It's about 20 minutes. There's a, a great sort of Q&A in there. Tells you how you can be helpful, um, how you can volunteer, and uh, and the awesome work that they're doing with, with H&H. Um, it, it's a really cool thing to be a part of. Um, Carly's doing a lot of great work with it in the little bit of free time that she actually has, um, which is really inspiring as well. And uh, yeah, we will be, as I said, donating all of our January Patreon proceeds to that organization. So please, if you can, if you like what we do and want to hear an episode every week instead of every other week, subscribe. Uh, We are online at HitFactoryPod. Again, subscribing at patreon.com slash HitFactoryPod. And uh, we will have more of these through 2021 and beyond. Thanks, everyone. 